gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now here's our show. Arena football, demonstrated by Kurt Warner and John Elway. Arena quarterbacks pass almost every play. Score so high you'll need oxygen. Running for the sidelines? What sidelines? Offense also plays defense. Oh, one more thing. The field, only 50 yards long. This is the Arena Football League Season 17. Coming to NBC, football is in the house. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations and welcome, 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 everybody. My name is Tim Hanlon reporting for duty. Nice to see you all or at least speak to you. Uh, through the magic of the interwebs and all kinds of Bluetooth-enabled devices and whatnot. Thanks for coming by this week uh, for uh, our little uh, shenanigans uh, that we like to do for you on a uh, on a weekly basis. We call it Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And uh, we're in the lull uh, this year. Uh, football has uh, finally ended. I think the latest it's ever ended on the on uh, February the 13th with a uh, pretty exciting Super Bowl this year. And uh, we're in for supposedly uh, only a, a short period of time for yet another uh, attempt at spring football, the reincarnated USFL coming your way, supposedly in uh, early April. But uh, while we wait for football to gear back up, let's go back to the topic of football arena style. Yeah, football, as the promo uh, there from 2003 and NBC, is in the house this week in our in our conversations um, uh, circle around this uh, funny and intriguing league, uh, the original Arena League football. Yeah, there are some variations that are still out there. The Arena League rules uh, still continue to soldier on, uh, as well as some other variants of indoor football. Uh, but uh, there's no mistaking the uh, the origination of the sport. Uh, as we've talked about with uh, league founder Jim Foster in two uh, tremendously uh, iconic episodes from early in our lives. You can search those up on goodseatstillavailable.com uh, and uh, and listen to those because they are just fascinating insights into uh, the um, the ideation of of a sport, frankly, out of a whole cloth, uh, actually on the back of a, of a, a manila envelope, uh, if you uh, listen to those episodes carefully. Uh, but around 2001 or so, the, the, as the aughts sort of uh, came about, um, arena football was kind of starting uh, starting to uh, become a little bit more mainstream and, uh, frankly, gearing up for a little bit more um, concerted national coverage uh, and on the ascendance uh, in uh, in terms of um, in terms of all of that. Uh, that promo you just heard was from the 2003 or the beginning of the 2003 season, the beginning of four uh, seasons worth of really in-depth regional and um, dynamic coverage by NBC uh, of the Arena Football League. And our conversation this week actually predates that by about two years as we get into 
uh, a conversation around largely a couple of those franchises, in particular, the New York Dragons. Yeah, they played at the Nassau Coliseum. They began their lives in April of 2001. And our guest this week, Greg Sarah, longtime New York Newsday sports reporter and columnist and uh, um, now uh, a video producer and, and the like, been there for dozens of years, um, I, came to our attention. We I'll, Let's just sort of frame this up. Um, our friends at uh, Dead Football League, uh, which is, um, as you probably know, and if you don't, shame on you, um, a uh, an online video um, a channel, if you will, no other way to sort of describe it, that literally airs streaming full games of just about every dead football league that had televised coverage out there. Um, it's a, it's a, a, don't, uh, don't yell at me, but you're going to lose a ton of time. And we've been dying to get these guys on for a couple of years. Maybe this episode will spur them on, uh, to coming on uh, our air and, and describing uh, why they do what they do and, and in glorious fashion. Uh, but yours truly was uh, tooling around on the site as I do every couple of weeks. And I just happened to be on uh, a game that uh, featured the, it was a preseason game of all things from, uh, April 8th, 2001. Uh, the uh, New Jersey Gladiators, them they of the uh, Brendan Burns slash Meadowlands Arena at the time. Uh, I don't think it was the Izod Center at that point. I think it was still the Meadowlands Arena. At the New York Dragons at the uh, Long Island uh, 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 Coliseum, the uh, uh, Veterans Memorial Coliseum in, uh, in Uniondale. Uh, and this was the first ever game of the Dragons, uh, e- even though it was a, a preseason match. Spencer Ross and Marty Lyons on the call. Um, for local uh, cable broadcast. And um, at the, it was watching at the end of the game, there was this odd sort of sequence when uh, this journalist by the name of Greg Sauer, our guest this week, suited up in uh, George Plimpton type style, Paper Lion, if you remember that book from, from ages ago when he suited up for the Detroit Lions and lived to write about it. Well, that's exactly what Greg did. And it's a fascinating story. So I looked the guy up and sure enough, he's still writing for Newsday, uh, a lifelong Long Islander. Um, we get into lots lots of uh, Long Island uh, uh, sports professionally, a little New York Arrows in there and some indoor lacrosse and stuff. But our main focus is on arena football, which was became one of his beats, uh, especially the New York Dragons. And the story, we'll have a link for it, that he wrote uh, just after that game in uh, April of 2001, uh, is fascinating. It gives you a real insight into, and our conversation does too, uh, into what it's like to kind of suit up for playing professional football. Uh, yeah, it's indoor, but it's just as uh, scary if you're not used to it. Uh, these big bruising guys who are, are um, exceptional athletes, large, uh, muscular uh, in good shape, uh, uh, speedy, uh, and just terrors, right? If you're on the wrong side of them, uh, and in helmets and, and pads at that, um, we get into all of that. And it's a fascinating story, the lead up to it, uh, how Greg, uh, found himself, uh, suited up getting called <laughs> to play, uh, near the end of the exhibition game and, uh, and all the stuff that came before and after it, uh, the before includes, uh, some franchises uh, that you also may remember from Arena League football history, the late 90s New York City City Hawks, um, who played at Madison Square Garden. The New York Knights make an appearance from 1988 in our conversation. Uh, we talk about the New Jersey Gladiators and the fact that the New York Dragons uh, were both uh, essentially 
one in New Jersey in the in the Meadowlands, the other in Long Island, uh, essentially carving up, if you will, two teams in the New York area, yet not being in New York City uh, for most of those years. Uh, Aaron Garcia, of course, a, a big uh, part of this conversation, a legendary Arena Football League um, quarterback star uh, for sure. Um, and all of that stuff is just, and it's just, it's a, it's a, we, we get into why the arena league's not around anymore, uh, how, how uh, compelling the, uh, the, the game was, why it did or didn't necessarily succeed in the New York metropolitan area, all kinds of fun stuff and a great excuse and a wonderful conversation with our guest this week, New York Newsday, uh, writer, uh, producer, uh, uh, columnist, extraordinaire, long timer, Greg Sarah, uh, our guest coming up in just a few moments time. Uh, you're going to enjoy this one uh, to no end, and uh, we look forward to sharing it with you in a, a couple of seconds. Uh, first, of course, we uh, want to say hello and thank you to some of our uh, esteemed sponsors, two of which I think are are quite relevant for this week's proceedings. Um, number one is 503 Sports. No, it's not 503 Sports. That's the sub-brand. Get it through your thick skull, Hanlon. It's Royal Retros now. RoyalRetros.com. The king of throwbacks. 503 Sports was the original uh, name of the company and uh, is now the sub-brand for lots of its uh, uh, great gear. And uh, a promo code for you there at RoyalRetros.com is SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, 10% off all of your purchases. And of course, there you're going to find uh, a pretty neat assemb uh, assemblage, not a uh, not comprehensive, but some great Arena Football League t-shirts and, yes, custom-made jerseys. How about the Detroit Drive? Do you remember them? Uh, you can find uh, their wares uh, and their uh, memories uh, there at RoyalRetros.com. The San Jose Sabercats jersey is there for you. Um, the, perhaps the um, Milwaukee Mustangs uh, are stuck in your brain of memory. All those and more. Get your name on the back of them. Get a number on the back of them and uh, wear your uh, arena football pride uh, by going to and buying from RoyalRetros.com. Again, promo code SEATS for you there. And our pal uh, Judd Lasher at 417Helmets.com is, is a wonderful place for you to visit and buy early and often from too. 417Helmets.com. That's the number 417Helmets.com. Promo code for you there is good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And uh, unfortunately, however, and I'm not sure why, maybe Judd's got a good answer for this, but there are no yet Arena Football League mini helmets there, but you name the league otherwise, and he's got them. These uh, mini football helmets are tremendous. Uh, they're basically the same high quality you would find uh, with regular sized helmets, uh, uh, right down to the uh, 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 the mouthpiece and the and the the, uh, uh, the trimmings and all that kind of stuff. And they make wonderful. Uh, souvenirs for the football fan in your life. And he's got a whole wide range of stuff from college and lots of different pro versions, including all of our favorite defunct football leagues. And Lord knows there just seem to be more and more of them by the year. Uh, but curiously, and maybe a little petition drive here, uh, there are no arena football league uh, helmets available at 417helmets.com. Why not, we ask? Uh, people are demanding to know. And um, uh, we put it out there for Judd. Sorry. Sorry, Judd. But perhaps, you know, there is uh, there is a, a groundswell for, for some of the at least uh, initial uh, teams maybe that uh, inhabit our, our our brains and maybe uh, uh, perhaps prove that there is a market for many helmets for uh, the long 
uh, forgotten arena football league, perhaps the New Jersey Gladiators, the New York Dragons, the New York uh, City Hawks, or even the original New York Knights from 1988. Uh, but regardless, you're going to find great helmets from all kinds of great past leagues uh, of your at 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. So says Judd. And again, it's 417helmets.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases, whether they're uh, you know, uh, 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 helmets or, um, or you want to put in an inquiry about the arena league as I will do, uh, have a, have a look and you're going to love, uh, what you find there. Thank you to Judd, uh, for your sponsorship, uh, of our little show. And thank you to Dustin Alameda at, uh, royalretros.com uh, for the same. All right, let's, uh, waste no more time. Let us get, uh, right into the meat of the matter, stick around and, uh, buckle up. Here we go. Let's get your pads, uh, your uh, pads, and your jersey and your helmet on now, shall we? Let's uh, imagine ourselves going back in time. We're going to talk to now Greg, Sarah, and let's talk about arena football and what it's like to be on the field having no uh, no professional experience. Here's our chat that we had just a couple of weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. So, for the benefit of our audience, and we'll get into. The story in a second, but I was, you know, just tooling around on this awesome dead football network, which is a streaming channel that's really just devoted to, like the name implies, uh, uh, no longer with us uh, football leagues. And uh, it's just literally an endless stream of USFL and XFL, both versions and AAF and you name the previous league of, of the past uh, in football. It's there. And I just happened to be tuning in uh, just to see what was on. Of late, and there was a an arena football game, and not just any arena football game, but one between uh, the metropolitan uh, uh, dominant forces of the New Jersey Gladiators and the New York Dragons <laughs> in a in a preseason game of all things from April of two thousand one. And I'm just about to turn away from it, and there's this little sort of head nod to this newspaper reporter who's playing and apparently going to be reporting on the game. Uh, and it just harkened back to things like George Plimpton like, and sure enough, I, I did some research and, and here we are, Greg. Um, and I'm fascinated by the story, but maybe before we get into it, tell me maybe how you sort of came into that position in the first place, because you're a reporter by trade, right? Right, right. I am a reporter. I've been with New York Newsday, uh, Newsday of Long Island now for 30 six years um that career started when the professional baseball career didn't didn't uh happen it was uh an opportunity that i love sports and i love to write and that opportunity availed itself in 1985 and i jumped on it and rose through the ranks uh in 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 the journalistic world from a part-time sports assistant uh to a full-time reporter to a columnist to a multimedia coordinator to the high school sports editor and, you know, opportunities to be uh, on all different kinds of social platforms. Uh, as we, we move forward through this career, we, we've been doing all sorts of things. We have a new studio at Newsday. So I get to a lot of TV time. I had a five-year stint with what was MSG varsity, which is varsity sports on TV, just like ESPN sports desk. We had the MSG varsity sports desk. We treated the high school athletes here on Long Island as if they were professional athletes. They were on TV every night and uh, features and game stories. And my career has been a blessing. I've been involved in sports 
I covered the Yankees, the Mets, the Jets, the Giants for a period of time in the early 90s uh, through the mid 90s. Uh, then my family started to take shape and it was um, a lot easier to cover locally and stick to the grassroots, uh, which is my expertise. And there were opportunities that availed themselves in some of these local pro leagues that were starving for media attention. And, you know, there was an opportunity with uh, the dragons that came up and we can get to that whenever, whenever you'd like, but I was kind of challenged to come out and see what the arena football league football was like, how close to the NFL, all these football players were that they weren't a joke that this wasn't just some league with, you know, uh, playing football in a hockey rink and risking their lives. And these were talented, tremendously athletic athletes in great shape that were looking for a shot in the NFL. And uh, Charles Wong, who owned the New York Dragons, um, reached out to me and said, I know that you're a fantastic athlete and I'm challenging you to come out and play with my boys. Would you do it? Do you have the guts? That's how it started. Well, before we sort of dig into that, let's also sort of set the scene a little bit for, especially for those folks who are not familiar or from uh, the New York, New Jersey, uh, Long Island okay. metropolitan area, like like I had the benefit or <laughs> or questionable uh, <laughs> background to do in in, this, in, in New Jersey. Um, describe Long Island uh, in a particular the Long Island sports scene because you're talking about some of these leagues and teams. Um, a lot of this actually centers around a facility that's still around called the uh, Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, uh, which for, for the New York metropolitan area was always, um, I wouldn't call it plan B for a fledgling league or a team or whatever, uh, but was always there sort of as a lever should the uh, downtown New York City thing not work out or, or at least a chance to put the name New York onto something if you wanted to be credible. Well, Tim, you nailed it because the first arena football league team in the New York metropolitan area did play in Madison Square Garden in the middle of Manhattan. And they played there for uh, about five years. Uh, Mike Perez was the quarterback. He had a little stint with the Giants, but it never really grabbed the attention or the interest. It never piqued the interest of New York City. And you're right. Nassau Coliseum was host to the New York Saints, which was an indoor lacrosse team uh they had uh the monster uh, med the trucks truck jams in there where they would you know monster trucks would come in and ride around but it was the new york islanders which was secondary for a long period of time when they first came in to the new york rangers uh but then the islanders had that great run in the 1980s and became the team in the new york area uh you have the long island ducks was a hockey team that played out on long island uh, more like a B-level professional team. But you never really had uh, a major sports team out on Long Island. We don't have one. The closest that we have out here, we also have the Long Island Ducks of the uh, – it's, it's a professional baseball team right now on Long Island of the Atlantic League, but that's that's not affiliated with Major League Baseball. So, yeah, you're right. It's always been like B-level type of, of teams to entertain the Long Island people and give them what they need for sports. Well, the New York Arrows, the major indoor soccer league, right, which right. Had, some, had championship runs uh, almost harmoniously with that of, uh, of the Islanders in that early 80s well, uh, period of time. Well, they did. And I'm going to ask you a question. Did Pele play on that team at all? 
No, what no, was that? But, Chef but it's, Messing. Chef, Chef Messing, Messing did, yeah, and um, yeah. a whole bunch of uh, former Cosmos uh, players uh, indeed played right. with uh, the New York Arrows and stuff. But for, yeah, for, and and it's interesting, and maybe this sort of segues into it because it, this is an arena and a market that is at once New York City metropolitan area, yet also quite distinct and in some respects almost doesn't want to have anything to do with the New York city area per se. Well, it has, um, it has no, it has no mass transit to it. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult. You got to drive to get there. And a lot of people don't see that Madison square garden, you get out of Penn station, you walk right to Madison square garden. It's in the heart of Manhattan. The Nassau Coliseum is standalone. It's right by Hofstra university. So that, that in itself is something that should be looked at. Yeah. Well, I, so, all right. So let's, let's, let me get into then. So you're, you're kind of getting your, your journalistic sea legs in the mid 1980s, maybe describe sort of the sports <clears throat> scene that was around you then. And perhaps what you were charged with doing from your earliest days to, I, I'm guessing getting assigned to some stories, some teams, some beats, maybe even volunteering for some of those. Yeah, so the opportunity in the 80s was to come aboard and be part of the high school staff. And we have 135 high schools on Long Island. Newsday does a phenomenal job of covering all high school sports, all sports. There's 37 different sports, and it's a big undertaking. And we have a large high school section. So our our constituents are expecting us to cover every sport. It's not just high school football, lacrosse, baseball, basketball, soccer. It's field hockey, fencing, swimming, golf. It's everything. All right. So anything volleyball, anything that you can think of in high school sport was covered by Newsday. So that was the beginning, the foundation of my job and working for Newsday. Uh, While that was happening, um, at that point in time, the Islanders were on a terrific run with winning a bunch of Stanley Cups. The... um, Yankees were just starting to put it together with Don Mattingly, Dave Winfield. Um, they were starting to win again in the in the mid eighties. Um, the the Mets had a great World Series run in eighty six. The you know the Rangers were still trying to put it together. They didn't win another Stanley Cup until nineteen ninety four. And the major market teams were the Islanders, the Rangers, the Jets, the Giants, the Knicks, and the Nets. And the Knicks had a great run through the mid eighties with Patrick Ewing and Bill Cartwright, that whole group of, of players. They were, they were great. John Starks. So sports in the New York area in the mid eighties was blossoming. It was really exciting. Every season brought with it hopes of a championship, something like kind of what Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has gone through in the last, you know, X amount of years, they've really been, the place in Boston and uh, Massachusetts with uh, the Patriots, the Red Sox, you know, it was kind of our time, the Bruins up in, up in Boston, you know, they've had that run now, but for me, it was focusing on local grassroots stuff, writing about that, learning, you know, how we do what we do at Newsday. And it was all about print back then. There really wasn't anything video. There was no social media yet. The internet did not exist. And, if you wanted to cover anything outside of like when the high school season ended, I got to cover Yankees and Mets baseball all summer. So it was awesome. It was like a, it was like a treat. You go out and you, you get to cover pro games. So that's how I started my career. 
uh, at Newsday. How do you then get sort of the assignments and then how do you, I mean, I'm guessing that some of these um, challenger leagues and teams and that's kind of stuff is, is kind of the scraps maybe that the, the top editors don't necessarily want to cover or they need, they need coverage and yeah. stuff. I mean, yeah. how, are you, how are you making your mark? And I'm assuming I'm projecting on you here that you're probably trying to throw yourselves into yourself, into those kinds of situations and opportunities. Well, like in anything, in, in any job, you have to really be uh, self-motivated. You have to be inspired to go out and do some of the things that other people don't want to do. Uh, what I thought I cut my teeth on in the high schools was the wrestling. Long Island has phenomenal wrestling. It's a hotbed for lacrosse. And we really didn't have a high school wrestling writer in the late 80s. So I kind of gr- grabbed onto that and made that the sport that I wanted to be an expert in. And I've been to 35 state championships since that started. And I really felt that if you could go out and take a beat and make it yours and know everything that you need to know about it, not surface things like everybody knows who the top five, let's say, wrestlers are. Like if you ask anybody, they know who the top quarterbacks are in football. But do you know who the linemen are? Do you know who the tight ends are? You know, can you get beyond the surface? Can you get to the middle of the pack and give me an interesting story of why the middle of the pack matters? Can you get down into the weaker teams and pull out some great stories? And that's kind of what I did. I went out and I thought, you know what, I'm going to make this mine so that people come to me and ask me about it. Same thing with arena football. I loved arena football because I liked the action. And I thought it was crazy. These guys are running around the field in full gear, crushing each other. And, and, and the field goals and the kick returns. And it was just a sport that I love football. I played national flag football for a really long time. Um, we had a great football team here on Long Island, traveled to some great places, RFK Stadium, uh, Michi Stadium up in uh, West Point, Giants Stadium. We played in there six times. You know, so for me, football was I played in high school, um, had opportunities to play nationally with a bunch of great players. Um, in flag football. And now the next level up from that, uh, from full contact flag football, was these guys playing arena football. And like you said earlier, XFL, USFL, it all failed because none of it is the NFL. But the AFL, the Arena Football League, was, I would say, 70% of the guys that were there were still looking for a shot in the NFL. And their agents told them, go play there. Play well, and we'll get you a shot, get you on a practice squad, get you an invite to training camp. And you had a lot of hungry athletes there. And I liked that. So I wanted to go there and tell their story, especially when the City Hawks folded in Madison Square Garden. Let's talk about about that for a second, because that's actually important. Because I'm assuming Uh that was your first sort of visceral exposure or even beat reporting to to the (laughs) league, because the league had really – you know, kind of avoided for various reasons, the New York area since that very first or second season. Um, right. So let, let's talk about these New York city Hawks. Cause I think a lot of people forget, I mean, people forget the AFL and, and obviously there are some reincarnations of, of what the arena league was all about still around for sure. But, but these, there, there was a team playing in, in Madison square garden for two seasons in the late nineties called the city Hawks. The city never embraced the city Hawks. Well, you're, you're putting that, real... I think you're reading charitable now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They but would, but, they but would describe them, right? Like how they came about and like why all of a sudden and why New York and taking the, the big, you know, Madison Square Garden, which has a ton of 
uh, uh, tenants already with not a lot of great dates and stuff. I mean, describe that sort of setup because then we'll get into the to the meat of the matter when you get to Long Island. Yeah, the very first game that I covered for the New York City Hawks, uh, you know, I, I get there and I'm expecting it to be like going to a Ranger game, you know, but it was nothing like that. It was you got into the Madison Square Garden, you came out and there was in an arena that can seat 14,000 people, 13,000 people, you might have had a smattering of 3,500, 4,000 people spread out all over the arena. And then you had these two football teams come running out onto the onto the football field, warming up, and the crowd was into it. I mean, they put a lot of money into it, but it wasn't something that the city was willing to say, this is real. And it never did. They were right. It never were able to basically grab the attention of the city. People would rather spend their money on the Rangers or the Knicks. And at that time, and it could have been timing, maybe there was way too much attention on those professional teams and people weren't taking the AFL serious. Remember the AFL originated out in the Midwest, you know, the Iowa Bondstormers were one of the great teams, but it never, it never, I never could understand how LA could have, with the Avengers could have so much interest. Arizona Rattlers could have so much interest. Iowa could have so much interest. Uh, John Bon Jovi bought the Pennsylvania franchise with Philadelphia, the soul, Philadelphia soul. And they packed the place. They were packed. But you come to New York City and they couldn't fill half the arena. Why? And I could never understand it. Mike Perez was a great quarterback. He was a former giant. They had players. They just could not make it work. Yeah, so I think some of it though was, if I have this right, I think um, the, the the league actually had been eyeing New Jersey as their sort of entry into the New York metropolitan market with the uh, uh, the New Jersey Red Dogs in the in the Meadowlands. And and my understanding is that the that Madison Square Garden or somebody affiliated with with the Garden said, "Hey, why can't we get a team in the city proper and maybe sort of make a a, a dual." Uh, effort out of it or, or, or something to that effect. But I, I guess part of it had to do with the fact that in essence, what happened in 97 was you had uh, in 96, you had zero franchises in the New York metro, metro area in this still fledgling arena football league. Uh, the next season, 97, you had two. Um, that maybe had something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I would say you're right. That definitely had something to do with it. You know, and I, I they had a great logo. They had great uniforms. They had the whole, the whole thing. They had the cheerleaders. They they promoted it. They went out of their way to you know to promote the team and the excitement of the high scoring AFL. It was on TV. Nah, did not grab anybody's attention. New York City was hustling and bustling, and they were like, "Yeah, there's a there's a football game going on in a hockey rink, but that's weird." <laughs> So, so why do you, why do you think then? I mean, was it, I mean, we, we see, this has been a classic case. I mean, it's it, like you go back now to the, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the New York arrows, right? They were, and they were a success on the field. I mean, they were just, they were, they basically invented the, the championship indoor soccer, uh, formula really, but they, you know, they never really drew more than I think 7,000 people on an average year, uh, out there on Long Island. Now, some of it was being out there on Long Island, some of the location challenges you mentioned, but, but here was a league that was just doing gangbusters. You had a team like the St. Louis Steamers that was like leading one of the leading indoor 
pro sports franchises in terms of attendance, including the NBA and the NHL. Yet here it comes to the big city, if you will, and it doesn't seem to to fly in the metropolitan area. Well, one of the things that you know will always be something that grabs people's attention is when you win. So what I remember from the first year, and I'll tell you something really cool. The first kickoff ever in New York City Hawks history was kicked past the net. The guy missed the net, and I caught it in the press box. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wait a minute, I got to keep the ball. And and that's what they did. If the ball went in the crowd, whether by pass or by kick, the fans got to keep the ball. So I caught the ball in the press box and I went to give it to the usher. And he's like, no, you keep it. He goes, and that's a penalty. I go, what do you mean? He's got to hit the net so they can return it off the net. And he goes, you know, we used to have, I never forgot this guy was working at Madison square garden for like 30 years. He goes, you know, we used to have arena football in New York. I go, when he goes like 10 years ago, he goes, they were called the New York Knights and they, they weren't good. And I was like, wow i go really he goes yeah i didn't even know about it he goes yeah nobody did that's why it was gone fairly quickly so the city hawks come in you know probably 10 or so years later and if i remember right that first year they only had like three wins they did not do well they were terrible and you know when you're losing 68 to 39 nobody's coming to watch who wants to watch a losing team nobody meanwhile like you said about the New Jersey team that they had those red dogs, they were owned by uh, one of the former giants. I believe. I don't remember who it was. I think it was Joe Morris was like the big guy. Oh, the running back. That's right. That's right. That's right. The running back. And they were fairly successful. I think, you know, that they were somebody that they did. Okay. You know, they, they weren't a, a complete failure, but it's funny. Like when, when the dragons started, and I know you don't want to jump to them yet, but I could tell you things about the dragons that was unbelievable. And I couldn't believe this thing didn't take hold and last a very long time. It was only in the garden for like seven years. Well, I mean, were you essentially covering this team for Newsday then? Yes. Was this part yeah. of your, essentially your beat? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. And I, and I volunteered because I liked it and it was fun and exciting. And we covered every home game. And then we even covered a couple of away games. I even got to fly on Charles Wong's private jet to one of the games out in Dallas, which was super cool. I'd never been on a private jet and Newsday gave me permission to go out to the game because it was a playoff game. And I got to go out there and sit in a private jet and get home really quick, right? Right after the game, you get right to the airport and you go home. (laughs) So there was some cool experiences. All right. Well, before we leave the city Hawks, give me a sense then of, um, uh, well, a couple of things. One, um, how, how are you, um, I'm I'm guessing you had to pitch your stories back in the news, yeah. right? For to get that column yep. time and and or that space, and and you know make the case that this is worth not only covering but you know giving more ink towards. There was a couple of opportunities to write about the City Hawks because of Mike Perez having played for the New York Giants, and there were so many players in and out of the AFL uh, heading to the the NFL and getting opportunities in the NFL that. Our editors felt, you know what, we should be there in case any of our local teams, the Jets or the Giants, sign any of these guys from the Arena Football League. You know, uh, it was this was played in the spring, so there was an opportunity for these guys to then get invited to summer camp with uh, the NFL teams. And that pretty much was the angle that I was taking on 
on everything. But our coverage waned on the City Hawks after they won three games or whatever it was that first year. Uh, my boss was like, yeah, we're not going to go there. <laughs> it's, it, they're just not good. And your your game stories are okay, but, you know, we we don't really feel like it's something we need to cover. And that ha- that had happened to all of those kind of teams, like the New York Saints, the Indoor Lacrosse team, same thing. I covered the, them, and when they started losing all the time, we said, you know what? We're not covering it anymore. They're, they're just not a good program. They don't win. And that's how that works. You know, you, you unless you're the Yankees and the Mets and you have a huge following and the Jets and the Giants, if you don't have that big following yet and you don't win, you're not getting the coverage. And that that's around the same time we're talking. This is sort of uh, the Saints were what kind of most mostly the 1990s, a little bit or a lot of part of the 80s and yeah. early 2000s, right? Yes. And what I remember most about the New York Saints was they had so much talent. They they uh, Sal Acasio was uh, who's a Hall of Famer in uh, indoor box lacrosse uh, goalkeeper. Jimmy Muley, uh, Steve Sombrato, his, his brother Vinny Sombrato, Mark Millen. A lot of – Long a hotbed for lacrosse. So it was very easy to recruit for these guys because they, they had great talent in their own backyard. And I think that's what they thought was going to keep the Saints um, alive. It was going to pack the Coliseum. People were going to come and watch all the local Long Island stars play indoor lacrosse and I covered them for a long period of time you're probably right it started the early 90s and it went through the early 2000s but I think our coverage waned after a while yeah yeah and and it's still I mean look the the Long Island market is still very much a a a lacrosse hotbed I mean there's been no no fewer than four teams the current one now the the riptide right um uh, have been out there and it, it just, the, 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 uh, the economics seem to make sense. The, uh, the, the audience base seems to make sense, but you know, some of it also tends to be, you know, leagues itself and stuff. I mean, the, the, the original national lacrosse league, right. Had some strong years and, uh, got off to a, you know, a centralized ownership structure. And then it kind of sort of withered away as time went on. So I'm sure the saints were not immune to that either. Um, well, so I, back on the city Hawks though, I, uh, they ultimately moved, right? I think they moved to New England after their second season. Yeah, I don't think they got any better either. Right, <laughs> but you didn't. You didn't. They were the Sea the Sea Wolves after they left. They went. Right, and they you went, didn't. You didn't continue to cover to them though. After no, that. no, no. We honestly, the second year when they were losing all the time, we kind of stopped um, covering them, uh, and it kind of it, it was terrible. So I was fired up when. They moved out of the city, and then Charles Wong announced that they were bringing an AFL franchise to Long Island with the New York Dragons. It was only a couple of years later, in like 2001, that we had arena football back. So, you know, I was pumped. All right. Well, so let, <laughs> let's talk about that origin story then. Um, for those who don't remember, uh, Charles Wong was uh, the uh, owner of, and, and some would argue, in some cases, the savior of the New York Islanders NHL franchise, and I think even the 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 the, uh, the Coliseum itself, right? So maybe maybe a little bit of background Absolutely. about Charles Wong and the Islanders, because without that, we don't have a Dragons. I don't think. I, I agree with you. Uh, Charles Wong was a wealthy 
uh, businessman from Shanghai, from China. He was a very generous uh, uh, guy. He was a billionaire, a philanthropist. He, he was a guy who cared about his, his, his local uh, roots, but also cared about where he lived and wanted to see sports and the National Coliseum succeed. He had proposed a whole bunch of different things for a hub in Nassau County. Like I was saying earlier, there was no mass transit going to the Nassau Coliseum. He was willing to build uh, all sorts of things in Nassau County, and he kept getting shot down. He kept getting voted out that they didn't want that kind of traffic uh, in, in the county. And I never understood that. Uh, this is a guy who brought the AFL to us, um, saved the Islanders. The Islanders were in a bad way when he bought them. Um, he's built buildings in almost every university in, the, in our area. He's amazing. Um, he was uh, the owner of Computer Associates here on Long Island from, I guess that was in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, he was well known and, and just a phenomenally nice guy and ultra competitive. As you can imagine, you don't become a billionaire unless you have some some drive and you don't you're not super competitive. How does um how does the dragons story get get around? I mean, like why? I mean, I we've we've talked about this uh, sort of scenario in other sort of uh, concepts, and it's actually pretty historical too. But um, there's sort of a love hate relationship, I think, between uh, owners of teams uh, in in leagues and then sort of moonlighting with uh, another team, maybe in the same arena uh, in another league. Right. And, and that sort of has evolved over time, but, but I'm curious as to why, and maybe you didn't have this conversation with him, but why the arena football league say versus um, another team say in another league to add into his, uh, his little uh, assemblage there at, at the uh, Coliseum. I think what happened was Charles had a couple of guys working for him that, uh, were advisors, uh, Michael Picker, uh, Paul Lancey. These were guys who were out in the community who are Long Island natives, who are, they're really in the grassroots of Long Island, what the New York, what the Long Island people want. And they said to him that they felt that this Arena Football League franchise would be profitable. It would be a good business to get into. Long Island will embrace it. They'll love it. They were a big part of the Islanders. Um, so with that being said, Paul Lancey, whose son was a terrific athlete at a Comac high school, he, um, he had reached out to me and said, uh, Charles Wong would like to speak to you about the New York Dragons arena football league team coming to Long Island. Would you be interested in talking to Charles? And I was like, Charles Wong wants to talk to me. And he's like, yeah, I told him you were a terrific athlete that you're still very active and that you would love it because you covered the New York city Hawks and you'd be the right guy. So I said, sure. I, I agreed to a meeting with Charles Wong and that's how I started covering the New York dragons. Charles Wong sat across the table from me at lunch and challenged me to not just come and write about the team or watch the team, he said, if I was a good enough athlete that I should be able to practice with the team and maybe play in its first game, would I be interested in that challenge? And I looked at him and I said, I absolutely would be. And he started to laugh 
And he said, so you would put your life in your hands and come out and play against my monsters and possibly get killed in a football game. And he was laughing. And I said, well, when you put it that way, it's a little different. But yeah, I would be willing to come out there. I'm a fairly big guy. I'm not I'm in good shape. I'm not really intimidated by anything. I think it would be fun. And he goes, you have a deal. And he shakes my hand. And I said, deal for what? He goes, you are on the New York Dragons. You're invited to camp. We start Monday. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I went back to Newsday. And I, I had to ask. I couldn't just do it. And I said, we have an opportunity. And the sports editor at the time was a guy named Steve Rowinski. And he was hesitant. And he's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. You could get hurt really bad. I go, yeah, you can. It's football and it's real football. It's, it's full gear, full contact, but I'll be fine. I'll protect myself. And he, they went and talked to legal, you know, the lawyers at Newsday and they said, look, if he wants to do it and we get great stories out of it, you know, let, let's, let's, let's do it. So we did. And that, that was the start of that. This um, I, I, for for background, this is a, uh, you know, Charles Wong uh, became, was a minority owner, a part owner of the uh, the Islanders starting in 2000 and uh, became majority owner in 2001. So this is around that time. Uh, and I think it was also around the time he was segueing out of uh, of his company. I, there was a, a uh, bunch out of, of computer associates. Yeah, correct. And there because there was a number of lawsuits about uh, uh, stock option awards and that kind of stuff. I don't think he was ever sort of um, I don't think it, I think rumors and he was sort of close ar- around it, but he was never sort of um, he was uh, never implicated, implicated, in right? Or, or charged. So but his it, partner was his partner was. But yeah. So not. yeah. So in in essence, he was essentially segueing into becoming a a, a sports baron, if you will. Um, That's right. And it seems like he he had a full head of steam, I guess, and 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 no no lack for confidence, I guess. Uh, not only about the you know being in charge of the Islanders, but uh, the the value and the promise of an arena football league team. I mean, did did he and or your editor, <laughs> had they ever heard of a guy named George Plimpton or read the paper lion? I mean, did anybody understand yeah. that this wasn't sort of a new idea per se, or, or I'm just curious because it just smacks as a sort of more modern day version of, of what Plimpton did years prior in various sports. Well, it, it definitely was something that, uh, that they talked about that, you know, you go out and you, you get involved with a professional franchise as a reporter. You know, there's a lot of trust on both sides of that too. You know, you're reporting from inside the organization of what's going on. There can be no deals, whatever happens, I can report on it. So it's the good, the bad and the ugly. If something ugly happens and I'm there, well, you risk, you know, that, and you know how teams are. They don't want the, the media knowing everything that's going on behind closed doors. But Charles Wong and Coach John Gregory opened their doors to Newsday and to me and said, hey, look, we want you to get the full Monty, what this arena football thing is all about. We're giving you that opportunity. So if you're George Plimpton wannabe, Greg Sarah wants to do this, we'd love to have. And and that's how it all started. And that's how I got involved with it. All right. So it wouldn't be the first time that I did something like that. So it would. It, it was the first time, but I would do it again later, later in life. All right. Well, so I give. All right. Let's let's circle around then the specifics of this. Right. So the team was uh, it was in preseason two thousand one, um, and that's when you made your 
your debut appearance. So there, you literally had nothing to kind of go on, except maybe for Charles Wong's word and maybe what you were hearing from the coaching staff and, and the, um, you know, and the general management of the team, right? You, that, that's really all you had to go on and your experience, I guess, with the city Hawks and understanding the AFL otherwise. Um, but I, this wasn't even after like a year or a season or a process no. in place there. No. You're, you're literally in one of the first ever and not even regular season matches. I mean, what's going through your head as to why this, at least on, on paper, on the field is a good idea. Ego. Um, always wanting to show that, you know, you can compete with anybody at any level in any sport. Um, ultra competitive. I was a three sport athlete in high school. I was a, an all-star athlete in college. I was a four year scholarship, uh, baseball player in division two Dowling college. I was, uh, I was a guy who had all the, the skills and the skill set of being a professional athlete. Uh, I was never intimidated or afraid to take a chance um you know i was always a captain of a team a leader and i wasn't afraid of it i thought it was going to be something that would enhance my career i thought it was something that would be fun to do uh to write about it to experience it to meet people that i may never meet get to meet uh to go out and do it and you know i went into it with my eyes wide open and Wow, I learned a couple of things the first, you know, couple practices about how big and how strong and how fast uh, football players are at the next level. And I'm talking about I only I played through high school, but I did not play in college. I played baseball. But when you go out and you get hit by a 240 pound, six foot three guy running full speed, you know, eight percent body fat. And you're 30, I guess at that point in my life, when I did the Dragons, I was 39 years old. I wasn't small by any means, 5'11", 230 pounds, and in good shape, all right? I got leveled a few times because those guys were never told that I was a reporter the first couple practices, only until I got wiped out on an outdoor kickoff because we, we practiced out at King's Point in an outdoor arena uh, with the same dimensions with boards as the indoor arena, uh, did the guys realize, hey, take it easy. This, you know, you could you could hurt this guy really bad. But a lot of those guys didn't want a reporter out there. And that's where you come into the gray area. They're like, well, wait a minute. Is this guy coming out here making a mockery out of our profession? We'll lay him out, knock him out cold and show him that this is the real deal. Or is he coming out here to tell the world that we're for real and we're just this close to making the NFL and there's a lot of talent out here? Which way is that going to go? So there was a strong message sent in the first couple practices and first couple workouts. And I became very friendly with Rodney Filer, who had played with the Chargers, and Aaron Garcia, who was a great quarterback and a friend. And they kind of told the guys in the room, hey, look, this guy's going to do the right thing. He's not here to embarrass anybody, so take it easy. And, and I became friendly with, like, everybody on the team. I was, they were all, like, they were with me. And I, and I did it for a month of workouts before our first workout, our first preseason game, the first game ever in the National Coliseum. And that was exciting. I get to run out with the team. Uh, 
with all the fireworks and the fans, and it was packed. There was nine or 10,000 people there for the first game at the Nassau Coliseum. And they announced your number, and you warmed up in the end zone with the whole team in full gear and getting dressed. You had all the adrenaline and you're fired up, and it, it was it was crazy. What's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, that's, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. So how did your position get determined? How did you evolve during during the training? I mean, uh, was it? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, were you? I, yeah. I, I know a lot of the players, at least at that time in the league, were had to be two-way in nature. A lot of them were two-way. Uh, there were very few specialists. I had played national flag football um, at, as a quarterback. I quarterback in high school. Um, that's my gift from God. I have a great arm. I'm 60 years old now, and I can still throw the rock with velocity. I still throw BP to my baseball players. I can do it every day. Um, you know, I went there to just quarterback. I wanted to get in for a series at quarterback um, late in the game, in an exhibition game, and just feel the rush, feel what, it, what a quarterback feels like, and get hit, you know, throw a pass see the speed of the game. Um, that was the plan. As the game, as we get to the game, and I had worked out at quarterback, I had worked out on the special teams, and I had worked out at middle linebacker, at, at Mike Backer. And there's a lot of rules in the Arena Football League with the Mike Backer when you're not allowed to leave the box until the pass is thrown, or if the running back gets outside the tackle. You know, there's a lot of rules. So it's kind of a safe position on the defense um, because you have to react to the play. Uh, you, you're not allowed to just move move about and do things. So that's cool. During the game, now the game starts. The announcements are over. We're playing the game. We're winning. Uh, we And I'm nervous. I, I'm I'm honestly terrified that and the, I'm John sorry, this, Gregory is. Yeah, this is the first yeah. ever game, right? Sorry, this is the first, first ever preseason. E- first ever preseason game for the New York Dragons. And I'm on the bench with all the guys, and the guys are great. We're playing great. And we're winning. And um you know, New Jersey's guys, like, they're walking past the bench. I'm looking up at these guys, and I'm like, man, they're huge. 
geez. And, 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 I, and I'm laughing, too, because I'm like, I practiced with guys that were this big the whole time, but it never really dawned on me that these guys are on the other team. They're, they're not my friends. They're not a teammate. You know, if I go out there, I am definitely risking uh, my health and my safety. There's no doubt. So the game winds down into the fourth quarter. We're up by whatever it was, eight or nine. And um, I'm not, it's obvious that I'm not going to get in a quarterback, um, which is fine. I'm okay. I'm kind of relieved. I, I'm anticipating not playing. And it's okay. I know that our photographer got pictures of me warming up and sitting on the bench with Coach Gregory and talking to Aaron Garcia during the game. And then with about a minute 40 left, John Gregory turns around to me and he says, Greg Sarah. And I said, yes, coach. And he goes, you ready to go? <laughs> and I go, where are we going? And he goes, we're going on defense. You go to Mike Backer. Right after the kickoff, I go, okay. So you got to stretch on the bench in the Arena Football League, especially when you're not going both ways. You know, so I started to stretch a little bit. They kicked off, and then I hop over the boards, and I jog out on the field. I have my helmet on. I get in the huddle, and I am the smallest guy on the field. <laughs> Greg Sarah. Oh, there's a – you may know that guy from his byline. Greg Sarah, number 33, who – From Newsday. He's the paper lion uh, for the Dragons. The writer for Newsday, he gets his chance right here with 14 seconds to play. Get up on him, Greg. Puts his hands up, couldn't get a ball, knocked away, and it's ruled a completed pass to Lawrence Samuels. Keeps Sarah in there on the goal to go. I want to see this. Are we going to watch Sarah on the replay? Watch, there, watch, watch his vertical jump right here. Pretty okay, good. You can slide a piece of paper underneath it. Watch, he sees it, he sees it, watch him jump. Oh, yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> Okay, Greg Sarah getting his opportunity. And I'm sure you're going to read about it Newsday tomorrow. He's worked out with the team. Pretty good athlete. He's going to get a chance down here. 7.2 seconds left to go in the game. Now, if, the, if, if the Gladiators know about it, about him, are they going to run the play out? Well, this is what they need to do. <laughs> if they know that he's in there, put Chris Pope back in there, that big bruising pullback. Newsday may lose a writer for a couple of times. <laughs> it's a whole new awareness when you think you can play the game and now you're actually out there and suddenly you're right in a goal line situation you're toward the top of your screen so Rico number 33 in it fullback him, looking away from him and the ball thrown out of bounds and we got still one and a half seconds to go in the ball game up and over the wall yeah. Number 18. See how Sarah fared on this play. Is a Mitch Aldner went up over the wall. Watch Sarah here. Moves, moves, stands, moves, jumps. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for not running to me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. He's got a mouthpiece, everything. <laughs> you, know, mouthpiece. you can see, look at that. Mouthpiece and it's molded. Yeah. Oh, wow. Here we go. He got ready for this. Final play of the game with a second to go. And the Dragons leading 69 to 49. And that'll do it as the ball is thrown out of the end zone. And Greg Sarah comes out of an unscathed as one of his teammates gets into a scuffle with one of the gladiators. And that is uh, quickly ended. He's over there. Hey, hey, break it up, break it up. The hey, game's Brad. over. Greg Sarah of Newsday. And I get in the huddle, and Rodney Filer is the middle other middle linebacker. He looks at me, and he puts his arm around me and goes, 
Hey guys, check it out. Newsday is in the huddle. My man. And he, and he, he pounds me in the chest. He goes, you ready to go? And I said, I'm ready to go. And he goes, let's do this. And he calls the play on defense, what we're doing. And he says to me, he goes, I got you. And I was like, I love it. And Chinachebi, who was also on the team, another monster. He's like, Gregor, I got you. I go, I got you guys. I felt, I felt comfortable, you know? And the quarterback comes up to the ball. He's like 6'6", six, six, with his helmet on. You know how big football players are. And he, looks, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I go to myself, I go, holy cow. <laughs> These guys are huge. Well, they call the play. The guy throws a seed over the middle. I jump. The ball goes over my hands. It goes incomplete. Next play, they throw incomplete. Next play, they throw a pass, 15 yards. Guy catches it. We all go to tackle him. I just miss making the tackle, but I'm aggressive on the play. They end up turning the ball over and downs. The game ends. I played like a total of six plays or five plays in the game. I, I don't remember what it was. Um, and finish the game. We win. I'm on the field for the win. And I find out after the game that when it was being televised, so everybody at home was watching. And Marty Lyons, the ex-New York Jets, said on the play that the ball sailed down the middle of the field and I jumped to try to block the pass. And he's like, did you see that, Greg Sarah? Did you see him jump that vertical? He goes, man, you could slip a piece of paper under that. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm good friends with Marty Lyons, so I have a good sense of humor. So I hear that from everybody that night. Do you hear what Marty Lyons said about you? He was giving you love on TV, but he did make fun of your vertical jump. I said, oh, great. You know, but then I saw Marty after the game, he came over and gave me a big hug down by the locker room. He goes, man, he goes, I got to give it to you. That was great. You know, we were talking and it was just, it's something in your life that you're just happy you did it. And you, you know what? I was blessed with knowing Charles Wong and given that opportunity and being able to write about it. And and Charles Wong actually sent me a framed autographed um, piece of what I wrote in Newsday with all the pictures of me in the Dragons uniform and what it was like and what the Arena Football League is all about. And Charles Wong wrote me a beautiful note on it. And uh, I'll never forget that. It was, it was, it was so cool. So coming af- off of that, how do you square that experience and then kind of find your sort of inner journalistic soul uh, to yes. put pen to paper and, and sort of, write about it right because it's not like you're taking notes during the game um like like what maybe a little insight into the process of how you uh come up with this column and then i guess a few others and and then frankly how then it it informs your coverage of the team as uh, as the season gets underway and you're reverting back to being a mere spectator sports writer yes so the the most important thing that i did from day one of the experiences, I, I, I created a journal and I kept track of everything that happened and how it happened and how it went down and emotions and reactions and the guys in the locker room and who was who and how the hierarchy of the uh, program worked and how the practices went and what these guys went through, what it's like to be an arena football league player and, and what it's like to want to be the guy that like me, I wanted to be, a, you know, in the MLB. I wanted to be a major league baseball player. And instead I played independently. So that was me putting myself in that position. Well, I was in your shoes in a different sport. So I get it. And, 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 and interacting with them and in, injecting myself into the situation and writing about the actual game experience. 
the hurdle after that was now taking your helmet off and being the writer and not being conflicted and being able to be fair and balanced and do your job as a reporter and having to do everything the way you would have to do it as if you were never in a dragon's uniform. And that was not hard for me. And I explained that to people like, look, if something here goes down, that's on the negative side of things. I'm still going to have to report it. That's my job. And everybody understood that. And, and to, to Aaron Garcia's credit, he was a classy professional, even in tough losses. He would spend 20 minutes to a half an hour me after games explaining what went down, what happened, what's going on inside the program with the team. Charles Wong always appreciated that I had the guts to do that, to pull it off. You know, um, so for me, it was a learning experience. It's also why it's difficult um, for journalists in some ways. You know, you want to have your contacts, but you don't want to get too close to people because you want to be able to keep that fine line uh, of writing your stories and being fair and being able to report the news to your to your readership. Does um, uh, it sounds like the players literally had your back. Uh, you had kind of won them over in in the training process. H- how do they feel about the piece? Uh, and and frankly, your your coverage of the team afterwards. Uh, what was the relationship like then? Especially when you kind of maybe had to call things like you see them. I mean, the good news is the team was quite competitive, made the playoffs. They were good. You were, yeah, like, they were good. unlike the New Jersey Red Dogs who. <laughs> emulated more <laughs> like the city Hawks with it. I think they only yes. won two, two wins that, that season. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they, the story was received. Well, um, the guys loved it. Charles Wong and, and uh, Paul Lancey and Mike Picker. They loved it. They, they thought that I was fair. They thought it gave a really in-depth look of, at what the arena football league was all about. Um, I know the commissioner was very happy with it. Um, an inside look at what the Arena Football League was. Um, people enjoyed it. People enjoyed the fact that a regular guy got out and got to play in a game and survived. You know, people thought, wow, that, that's pretty cool. It really piqued everybody's interest. It drew a lot of people to the Dragons because I guess my excitement of the sport came through in my writing. And then I guess that season, because they were good, they had some tough losses. I always wrote the story the way I saw it and they were very accommodating win or lose. The players were always there to uh, give their side of things, even in in a situation where a drop pass cost them a game or a blown coverage cost them a game. I always had the guts to go to that guy and say, Hey, how was, how was the throw there? And that's hard to do. A lot of reporters, good reporters. It's not hard to do that. That's your job. You know, uh, Aaron Garcia threw, a devastating interception in one of the games. And, you know, he was my friend, but he also knew that I had to do my job. And I had to ask him after the game in front of other media, Aaron, on that read, uh, did you not see the safety? And he's like, you know, had I seen him, I wouldn't have thrown the pass. And he started laughing. And, and it was so down to earth and real. And I think there's always a trust factor also that they trusted that I wasn't out to kill them. I wasn't out to make the sport look like it was not a good sport, that I knew it was real. I knew it was tough. I knew the guys were an inch away from being an NFL 
prospect or they were a prospect an inch away from being in the NFL. There was a lot of talent there. You know, Mike Fury, who was the best receiver I'd ever seen uh, in the league, he went on to play for the Rams and had a great career. And he was phenomenal with the, with the Dragons. I mean, phenomenal. So it was good. It was really fun. In fact, one of my teammates from that first game was Sean Trombley, who is now the head football coach at Comswag High School here on Long Island. So we have that kind of bond, you know, from the Dragons. So it's pretty cool. You know, we, we can laugh and talk about some of the practices when I got knocked around. And he's a big fella. And he, he would laugh and go, you know, remember when this happened? Remember when that happened? But those are fun, fun things. You think Wong kind of maybe knew that that was sort of going to be the result that that by having, I wouldn't call it a plant, but but somebody yeah. from the inside would maybe, especially oh, yeah. the, the most, you know, the, the, the most uh, uh, important uh, uh, paper in in the immediate area in their in their uh, in their marketing area, um, I mean I, I don't want to say you were maybe being quote unquote used in some respects. Well, I mean you know I the, the cynic maybe, could, maybe the cynic could yeah, say that yeah. right. Yeah, maybe 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 they were using me. Maybe I was using them. You know, maybe I was trying to do something in my career that would enhance what I was doing. Maybe I was a recognizable face to Long Island folks that they could connect to, and they could say, you know what. Look at Newsday's Greg Sarries out there doing that. That is so cool. That is what every ex-football player would want that opportunity. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe it was ego. Maybe it was, I want to do this so that when people see me, they say, what was that like? And I get to tell that story. Like I'm telling it to you today, 21 years later. There's a, there's a lot of sides to that. Do I think they were they were shrewd in some of that? Yeah, of course. That's why he's a, he was a great businessman. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing, and and you know what, and I knew what I was doing. No, I I, that, I also I also think too. You sort of hinted at it before too. I and we've seen this this theme over and over again with with uh, challenger or new and fledgling leagues and teams and new markets. Um, it's sort of this um, I don't know this sort of like a lunch pail kind of uh, 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 yeah mentality. relationship mentality right where yeah, where yeah. the fans feel. Like they're much closer to these players yes. and to this league. It seems more accessible. Uh, it's not like the NFL. It's not like the NBA where, you know, the stars are, are and the, the names and the people and the it's all bigger and, and, and sort of more out of reach. This is a little bit more familiar and maybe more accessible and relatable and and arguably, maybe not so arguably, you know, you're being part of this team in the, in the beginning process and writing about it is almost the ultimate expression of that. Well, there's no doubt about it. And I felt that way when the offer came my way. And, you know, like I said, it, there's opportunities in your lifetime that you don't want to look back and say, I should have done that. You know, I, I never had that feeling. I felt that this was the right thing to do, you know, and I, I'll quickly go over when, the MLB went on strike in, in 1994, whatever, in the mid-90s. And I was offered to play on five different replacement teams. And I was really at the height of my baseball career. I was playing men's baseball all over the country, uh, internationally, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Dominican Republic, Canada, Mexico. I was playing everywhere. I had never given it up, uh, you know. And I went out to the Philadelphia Phillies replacement player workouts in Santa Ana, California. Kind of similar 
to what was going on, the everyday man going out to make an MLB roster because the, the real players are on strike. And I got to write about it in Newsday for, you know, for a couple of weeks. And I went out there and I had the greatest time with Jim Fregosi and, and the people, Buck Rogers, the manager, and Sal Agostinelli, the international scouting director. And to me, had I not done that and Newsday not given me permission to go out and write about baseball, what's really going on in these workout camps for replacement players, for scabs, nobody would have ever known on Long Island what was really going on. And honestly, 75% of the guys trying out for those teams were horrible. 25% were really good. 25% were in double A AA and triple A and forced to cross the proverbial line, even though there wasn't a picket line, you know, but I don't regret that at all. And I had to go back in and cover Yankees and Mets for, I would say, five more summers after that, knowing that some people would recognize me. I was there with Rick Reed with the Phillies, and he was on the Mets. <laughs> so I would see him in the locker room, and he'd come over and give me a hug and say, hey, what's going on? We were friends. But I don't regret it. It was another George Plimpton type of opportunity to go out and live the dream. And I did well. I did well. It was fun. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of it, it's I think it's easy to kind of uh, have an opinion about that from the outside, but you know if if you have that opportunity, right, and and you have a legit chance because you you have playing experience and you're you're good enough to be considered in a conversation like this, right? It's very right. hard to to turn something like that down and to have the chops to be an actual, you know living breathing journalist right you have you've got the tools of the trade it's not like it's uh you know it's a it's a circus event right it, it's actually no. you actually have the opportunity and the, the the legit creds to actually to write stories about what you're seeing on the inside and and for you know if you're a journalist right that's priceless that's you know in, in war terms that's in being embedded right uh yes, yes it's no different in that regard right and how better to proverbially get the story than being in the middle of it you get the opportunity to see it from the inside, which is what every journalist wants. It's like when a guy goes to a journalist goes to war and they're embedded with the troops. They're in it. They're there. They're experiencing what pretty much what the soldiers are experiencing. So we're going out to to the baseball workouts, tryouts was an opportunity to tell our readership. What is going on? Is this going to be a viable product that the MLB owners are going to put on the field? Is it going to resemble anything of what the Major League Baseball players can give you? And the answer was no. Not even with all the AA and AAA guys that crossed over and were told, if you don't play, we're going to get rid of you. We need you to play. And then all the people, they tried to find the diamonds in a rough from all over the world. Were there enough people there to make it something that people would enjoy go out and spend all their money on at the stadiums and then unfortunately they never really found out when everything was over in a couple of weeks the mlb players came back and you never found out what replacement baseball would really have looked like you know but i got to report on it and tell people what it was going to look like i got to tell them that there was some talent out there and I got to write about it, experience it. Heck, I got to leave New York and go out to Santa Ana, California and and do what I love to do, which is write and report 
and to play baseball, which I love more than anything in the world and still do. So, you know, I'm blessed. I've had opportunities in my career to enjoy sports from all angles, from writing about it, from speaking about it on broadcast, from going on the radio about it, from playing, from participating. It's pretty cool. All right. A couple other questions uh, to sort of, uh, uh, this has been great to, to sort of uh, put a, a coda on this stuff. So what of the, uh, what of the dragons uh, for the rest of that decade in your coverage? Why do you, um, I, it seems to me that uh, it was uh, the league. They were going to continue if, if not for the league taking a pause and then some in 2008. Yeah. I, I think when the league, Look, they had to go in and look at their product and see why they were failing in certain places. Why were they unsuccessful in certain places? And why did they have to reduce the league and lose some teams? You know, what made Albany, New York, a better venue than Long Island, New York? Why? They had to investigate that because when Albany had their team, they packed the Pepsi arena. Arena football was huge up there. Is it, is it a small town mentality? And Tim, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why Long Island didn't embrace it the way Albany would. You know, um, Orlando had a good following in Florida. Why? The Arizona Rattlers, they had a great following. Orlando, you know, the too, right? Soul, Tampa, Tampa Bay yeah. Storm, right? Yeah. Tampa Bay Storm was great. You know, Georgia had a great team. Um, the Philadelphia Soul, John Bon Jovi pumped a lot of money into that. I met him at one of the uh, Dragon Games. What a great guy. Loves football. You know, he pumped a ton of money into that. That's why they were successful. You know, it's not it's not a hard thing to, to be successful when John Bon Jovi is going to entertain you at halftime or after the, after the game's over, you're going to well, get a couple you songs. Also, you also had N- NBC. <laughs> the NBC had also taken to the yeah. AFL in, in uh, yeah. I think it's 2003, Sunday afternoon. Right. Yeah. Was, and they yeah, went Sunday all in. Afternoon. I mean, they did regional coverage, now Troutwick, oh, yeah. a man in the, I mean, yeah, you could not have put, uh, have not been putting more marketing muscle uh, against that league at that point. No, they, they did everything they could to make that work. I, you know, it's funny. I, I look back at it and I still question how it failed in certain markets, but it did. It did not, it did not do well. I, I, you know, the excitement of the game, fast pace, you would think New York, that would be what New York wants. That would be what New York, you know, would, would want to watch, but it didn't happen. The commissioner was a great guy, monster, big guy, David Baker friendliest guy you ever met in your life football through and through he shook my hand he shook my whole arm (laughs) biggest hands i've ever seen on a human being in my life and he thanked me for what you know what i did with the dragons and i told him look thank you i thank you that i had that opportunity because he could have put the kibosh on that too i'm sure charles wong had to ask the league for permission to go through with it so but they did make me sign a contract you know, Tim, I did sign a contract. I did have to sign it. I have that. Um, they, I kept my uniform. Um, I did have to sign a, a, a death benefit um, that if I died, I couldn't. I hold them harmless. <laughs> a waiver. A death waiver is what it was. Could you imagine? I almost thought Charles Wong was playing me when I did that. That it was trying to strike a little fear in me. 
you know, that that was real. So, okay. Well, I, yeah, against that backdrop, why, uh, why do you think the arena league essentially came to its demise? And again, there are, there, there are, there, there is a, a handful of progeny that's sort of, you know, and more minor league, I guess, fashion and stuff, uh, uh, you know, continue and soldier on, so to speak, some of it with the actual original arena rules and others not with those official rules and stuff. But but why do you think the sport kind of, for lack of a better term, petered out and the AFL I think it was, overall? Yeah, I, th- I, I would say, Tim, that it was more because it was poorly run from the top down. I don't know that they had a great business plan. I, I know they filed for bankruptcy somewhere around 2010 in that area. Um, they tried to reform the league. They tried to uh, pare it down to fewer teams, fewer divisions, less travel, save money here and there. But, you know, they ceased operations in like, I don't know, like 10 or 11 years ago. And I think it was, it just had bad management. It, it had to be more because they weren't paying attention to the details. Not, not in the, nobody, I don't think there was any uh, stealing or any of that else. I just think, when you're selling a product, like you said, that's a challenger product. Like right now, they're trying to start a football league down in Tampa, down in Florida. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to work. People like their NFL. You know, if it's not the NFL. Yeah, they're, they're, bringing really back the, they're, they're bringing back the USFL, which is really this the spring league thing that is just sort of borrowing and or trademarking old names from a league that itself only lasted three years. I, you know, and then trying to tap into, quote unquote, nostalgia. I, you know, I... I, I don't know. It just seems to be an appetite insatiably. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem like any entity can sort of keep it running for any, any extended period of time. Uh, AFL no, I, I agree with you. had a fairly long run by by those uh, standards. Yeah, it's something that will always look that that NFL, that league down in Florida is allegedly going to be connected to the NFL. Did did you did you know that that it's going to be guys that are yeah developmental squads. league of some sort right yes yes yep and that's the difference between that and what the arena football league offered or the USFL or or the uh, you know any of the XFL you know the XFL had all sorts of gimmicks that they thought was going to work but the real thing is what people want and that's why all these other challenger leagues don't work. All right. Well, let me ask you one last question then. Speaking of challenger leagues, I, I can't let you go, given all your uh, time in Long Island and the Nassau Coliseum and and the Dragons and stuff. I'm, I'm going to throw two other uh, franchises uh, your way and see if there was any any of them that hit your radar, uh, either professionally or you were aware of. Um, okay. There was 1996, the thing called the Long Island Jaws in roller hockey international does that strike a, a chord with you <laughs> you know when i grew up they had roller hockey uh everywhere in schoolyards everywhere you played on four wheels not on inline skates they also had roller derby on tv okay and i don't want to date you but they had roller derby which people they rode around a track and elbowed each other in the face and scored and everybody thought it was really cool when they brought the lion jaws out to long island it was um, roller hockey on inline skates. There was no way that I thought that that was going to make it on Long Island. It was at the National Coliseum, all right, mid-90s. I remember it, but I don't remember them doing a great job promoting it. Like, if I didn't hear about it at Newsday, 
Who's going to hear about it? Nobody. And and it's something that you had, you know, it's funny. You brought it up just now. I hadn't even looked it up. I just remembered that they, they were only here for like a half a year or a year. <laughs> yeah, we had, um, uh, uh, we were lucky uh, before he passed away last year, uh, Dennis Murphy, the uh, the founder of not only Roller Hockey International, but the ABA and part of uh, the World Hockey Association. He was uh, also involved in WFL and some and a whole bunch. I mean, he's like the one of the patron patron saints of uh, of of you know challenger leagues and stuff. And it's that roller hockey international thing is is really intriguing. Uh, it was a summertime sort of filled for indoor arenas, and yeah, it, the Jaws only lasted one of those seasons, but it was actually a place where people like Jeannie Buss right now, you know. The, the grand dame of the Los Angeles Lakers, you know, Los Angeles, it, yeah. it was the franchise that, uh, that, uh, that dad, uh, uh, Jerry gave essentially to her to kind of run with. And, uh, you know, she kind of cut her teeth on, on, on that thing. So you, you never really know with these leagues and teams, like what the people who come out of, you mentioned Aaron Garcia, right? I mean, one of the greater players in, in, uh, uh uh, in, in football history, NFL included, right. Um, what a story yeah. of, you know, earning your stripes in the arena league and then, uh, and then making it to the big show. I mean, all right. And one last one I'll throw out your way. Let's, let's try this. The third incarnation of, of um, lacrosse, but only for one year, the New York Titans of 2007. Does that ring a bell? You know, the New York Titans lacrosse came after the New York saints. Correct. They There's had a four year great, difference. Yeah. They, yeah. They had a great logo. It was orange. It was almost the similar colors. I wouldn't say the Mets, but it was orange and navy. They had awesome uniforms. They played box lacrosse. But again, they did a bad job of promoting the team and the sport. And there wasn't even recognizable names from the New York Titans. Like if you go back, well, if I go back and look at the roster, the first thing you want to do, you're in a lacrosse hotbed. You want to put guys on this team that people would be familiar with, correct? I mean, you want to, you want to get going. The greatest players, I believe, in the United States come from the East Coast. It's changing a little bit now. You know, out in Colorado, Denver area, there's some good teams out West. But for the most part, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, um, New Jersey and New York is where all the great lacrosse players reside. You go back and look at the rosters from the New York Titans. And the first thing you'll say is, where are all the New York guys? They're, they're not there, you know, and I would have to go back and look at that, but I don't remember, but I remember there wasn't like many guys that you could write a story on. Hey, remember this guy played three sports at, uh, Cold Spring Harbor High School. Well, he, he's on the New York Titans now. They're the new lacrosse team at the National Coliseum. You might want to go check them out. You have no marketing or nothing to hang your hat on to make people want to come out and check it out. And and that's what I remember the New York Titans. And I, I can't remember who was on any of those teams. Well, that, but, that, that, that right there says something, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, of course, especially yeah. for a sport <laughs> and a league, you know, where, where the, the culture of lacrosse is so strong. You'd you'd want to yeah. go out of your way to find local talent and heroes, right? To to at least get the the grassroots crowd excited. Um, I guess the one thing I remember at the Titans, and I got I aired they they didn't last for one season; they lasted actually four for three. 
But I th- okay. the, where I got confused was um, it looks like they were trying to either by uh, strategy or by circumstance uh, be sort of a regional franchise. So I think they were splitting time between Madison Square Garden and the, and the Nassau Coliseum. And then I think that in the latter two years of their lives, they were playing a whole bunch of their games at the Prudential Center, the newly built in Newark. And I don't know, that would seem to be two, three different arenas in, in one season. Um, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success. Not because nobody's identifying with your team as their team. You know, you don't have a fan base. Now you're all over the place and you're in three different venues and you don't identify with anybody. And that's that's an epic fail right there from a marketing standpoint. You know, I really believe that. Uh, look, you look at what I said to you earlier about the, the, the New York Saints. I can rattle off five or six guys on their roster. And I covered them how many years ago? And Jimmy Mulay and Sal Acasio and a bunch of those guys. Um, uh, Rick Service and those guys. They, they now own 91 Lacrosse, which is the biggest lacrosse supplier probably in the country for equipment and organization. Their travel organization is massive. They have hundreds of kids playing through 91 lacrosse, getting college scholarships and playing well in high school, training kids. They built a million, a multi-million dollar business after their careers with the New York Saints. Yeah, this is the, the, the gift that keeps on giving, I guess, right? And that's 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 heartening too, because uh it's it's part of the legacy, right? Of of all these teams we talked about, right? And and some of the local players that stick around or, or continue to sort of give back, if you will, to the community. All right, here's my very last question. Um, so this has all been fantastic. And, and obviously the, the arena football part is sort of centered to it. But um, uh, maybe you can give our audience a sense of uh, either personally or, or uh, uh, rationally uh, the current status and the future of the Long Island um, of the Nassau Coliseum, because it's been uh, you know, talked about, uh, you know, the Islanders are now moving into their brand new facility uh, near Belmont Park, which would now be, I think, the sixth major indoor arena facility in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, is, UBS arena. Yep. Is, UBS. Is that one or two or three arenas too many? I don't know. Um, but what what is the the current status and the future of the Coliseum? Because it's fairly newly renovated. Uh, and it's still a very viable venue for lots of things. Uh, maybe the maybe the, uh, the the transportation thing isn't any better, but but what do you think its uh, its life is going to be going forward? It, so I pass that all the time. Uh, I will tell you that it is much nicer as a venue since they renovated it. It is cleaner, uh, more accommodating. Uh, the visuals from all the seats are are really good. But what I will share with you is it will become, from personally speaking, what I think, it will be a concert venue, special events venue, speakers venue. Um, I doubt very much you'll ever see a major in the New York City market uh, team in that market from any sport being in the Nassau Coliseum. I just don't see it being somewhere people want to go. Uh, concerts are great. We saw Michael Buble there not, not too long ago. Who's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, you get to see good country concerts there. They, there's, a, there's a lot to be said for entertainment. I think it's going to become more of an entertainment venue instead of a sports venue moving forward. Um, 
The UBS arena is state-of-the-art by the old Belmont State Park. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. I think parking has been a problem there um, because they've had overflow crowds, but that's something that they'll have to work on. But yeah, you look at some of the venues in our area. Flushing Meadows is beautiful. Um, the Barclays Arena is just difficult to get to and not in a great area where the Nets play. Uh, I don't know how that survives in the next couple of years. Um, the Nets need to be good for that venue to continue to be successful. Um, concerts, they're okay. Sidelines for hockey games are not good. Uh, I don't think people are really in love with the Islanders playing there. So uh, when yeah, they were I, playing I, there, it, was, it wasn't great. I just, I just, I just feel that there's a little something sort of missing if the Coliseum doesn't. Uh, I know the uh, the G League Nets are playing there, and the Riptide and in, in, uh, National Cross League are playing there. But it's also something sort of, uh, it's a, a piece of of that history of that building, especially given the yes. Islanders' success over the years, and then the early New Jersey, or sorry, excuse me, New York, <clears throat> New York <laughs> Nets. Um, I uh, I grew up in New Jersey, so I knew them as the New Jersey Nets. But I digress. Yeah, I mean, it just it feels like there should be. <laughs> There should be something there uh, in the top tier of sports and stuff. But, you know, um, mm-hmm. if it's still around, I mean, the fact that it's still around, you never know what's going to still come around the, come around the block. And, and there seems to be no shortage of uh, private equity money and investment in sports these days. So who knows what's coming next? And, and maybe something uh, of excite, uh, excitement beyond uh, the minors uh, will come again to the Coliseum. I would love to see the Islanders back there at the Coliseum, but that's not going to happen. Uh, I was sad to see them go and to be moved around the way they've been moved around. Every time they came back to the barn, that's the nickname for the National Coliseum, that place was packed, packed. People love their Islanders. They love them being at the National Coliseum. So it's one of the true travesties in New York sports that the Islanders moved out of the National Coliseum. Well, if we uh, if we hang in long enough, maybe we'll see another uh, uh, top tier uh, indoor slash arena football league team someday. What do you think? I would love to see arena football back on Long Island and just see the arena football league flourish again, because it was exciting. And I followed it really closely. Uh, You know, like people wouldn't know these things, but there was a guy who played in the arena football league that I thought should have been in the NFL. I'm not a pro scout, but this guy dominated for years. He was an MVP for years. And I got to see him play at the National College team. His name was Barry Wagner. Wow, was he a talent. Just an absolute stud. And I interviewed him after one of the games. And I, you know, I said, well, what is it with the NFL scouts that you're not in the NFL? You're certainly talented enough. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm what they call a tweener. Not big enough and not, not you know, for certain positions and too small at those positions. And then maybe not long enough at other positions, like not tall enough to be a defensive end to knock passes down and be an outside rusher, not big enough to be on the line and maybe not big enough to be a middle linebacker or a linebacker. And the guy was just a great athlete, you know? So, you know, you just never know, you know, people get breaks, other people don't, but he was, you know, he was one of those guys that you watch him play and you're like, this guy's fantastic. He really is. So I loved it. I loved covering it for those years. The Arena Football League will always be dear to my heart. Uh, I I pridefully uh, show off my Dragon's Helmet to friends. I have it in a showcase here at the house. That's so pretty cool.
Yeah, it uh, it seems like it was yesterday, but uh, the I look at the calendar and it uh, it wasn't yesterday, just yesterday. Uh, the Arena Football League it continues to fascinate, uh, and uh, we look forward to more uh, explorations in the uh, in the months to come. Uh, Lord knows how many teams there were and various iterations and and famous owners and and uh, just all kinds of stuff. So L.A. Kiss. And, uh, Philadelphia Soul with uh, bon, John Bon Jovi and uh, John Elway, of course, part of the uh, the ownership mix, and uh, just so much uh, uh, to further explore there. So we, we'd love to tackle it literally and figuratively more. And we thank Greg uh, for the conversation this week to uh, kind of uh, allow us to steer back to it after a fairly long absence here on this show. Um, the article. Uh, from which this uh, idea for this week's episode came from uh, is available uh, to you from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 250. My goodness. And uh, you'll find a link to uh, the article from, when was it? April 10th, 2001. Paper Dragon, a reporter learns what it's like to get in the arena with the pros and find he's got the right stuff. Get it? Um... You might be able to link to it, too, from the show notes, depending on how you've uh, uh, received this week's episode. But if not, just go to our website and uh, and you'll have you'll find a convenient link to it. It's a great read. Um, we'll also have a link to the uh, the game that Greg played in from um, two days prior. That's April 8th, 2001. That preseason match from Fox Sports Net back when that was a thing. The Gladiators at the New York Dragons. Uh, and a whole host of other goodies, of course, at Good Seats, still available com. All of our old episodes, all of our ones to come as well. Uh, you'll find all of our social media feeds uh, listed there for you. For example, we're on uh, Facebook. Uh, you can find us uh, on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You can find Greg on Twitter, by the way, at Greg underscore Sarah. Greg is spelled G-R-E-G-G, two G's, underscore Sarah, S-A-R-R-A, two R's, at Greg, two G's, underscore Sarah, two R's, uh, on Twitter. Uh, what else? Uh, you can send us email, if you'd like, uh, about today's show, this week's uh, uh, banterings, or potentially other things, or things you've got uh, of interest you like or hate, or, or somewhere in the middle. Whatever you want to send, send along. Please keep it clean. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, on our website, uh, aforementioned, you can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. There's a little button in there somewhere. Uh, just give us your name and your email address, and we'll give you a little heads up on the coming week's festivities. And um, I think that's kind of all we've got. Uh, our pal Jerry Payne uh, has uh, done yeoman's-like work again this week. We thank him for his uh, twiddling of knobs, of course, as always. Thank you, kind sir. And um, we thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.